shall continue then. Come with me, please, in the Word of God tonight to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. I just want to read two verses, verse 7 and 8. It says, And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. But they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. And war broke out in heaven. Psychologists, sociologists, criminologists tell us that man's behavior by and large is a product of the environment that they were brought up in. That is to say that the environment a man is subjected to predisposes him to certain behavioral patterns for good or for ill. And where there may, where they, while there may be some element of truth in that statement, and no doubt that there is, Yet, it just doesn't quite add up scripturally. Too often this becomes an excuse for certain behavior. Becomes an escape clause. Becomes a cop-out for us taking personal responsibility for our behavior and for our attitudes. In fact, our text, in fact, argues against such a theory. Now, I've taken a little bit of a liberty tonight by using this text, because I'm not going to talk about Revelation, and I'm not going to talk about the war in heaven. But I'm going to say this. If there ever was an environment where there should not have been rebels and war, surely it would have been heaven. If ever there was a perfect environment. It was heaven. What more perfect could that environment be? The most perfect place in the whole universe. No injustice. No unfairness. No grievances. No crime. No want. No poverty. No sickness. No disease. Perfect living conditions. Perfect climate. Perfect company. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. It doesn't get any better than that. And yet, we just read, war broke out in heaven. Of all places, can you imagine that war would break out? Even God's heavenly, celestial, created beings found themselves a reason to rebel against God's perfect order. Eden was an earthly heaven, was it not? like after the heavenly pattern. It too was perfect. It too was pure. It too was peaceful. Eden was a place of full provision for man. Again, no injustice, no grievances, no unfairness, no crime, no want, no poverty, no sickness, no disease, a perfect climate, perfect living conditions, perfect company. Even God himself would come down in the cool of the day and talk to his created beings. And yet, man turned that earthly heaven into an earthly hell. 
The environment didn't change man. Man changed the environment. The very earth became cursed because of his sin and because of his rebellion and foolish pride. Now there's some who mistakenly think, of course, that heaven, that perfect place with perfect people, that perfect environment will suddenly and dramatically change all of us. It will right all of our wrongs. It will adjust all of our attitudes. We will arrive as sinners and we'll end up as saints. Some even believe, in fact, that everyone in the whole world, regardless of how they've ever lived, will end up in heaven as a saint of God. And yet Revelation 21, 27 says, there shall, be no, there shall by no means enter it anything that defiles nor causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Someone saved people thinks that heaven is the great cure-all, but Christ is the great cure-all. Some saved people think that they can live on earth and all kinds of disobedience and carelessness and bitterness and in sin. And then when they get to heaven, they will be magically changed. But that's not going to happen. Some naively think if only you could find the perfect church, the perfect people, the perfect order, the perfect form of worship, then everything would be great. It would be perfect. But you know, the Apostle John, he was caught up in a vision into heaven. Do you know that twice he got it completely wrong? Could you imagine that the great Apostle John, with all of his knowledge, with all of his intimate relationship that he had with Christ, the one who leaned upon his breast, the one who was given the charge of looking after his mother, can you imagine that the Apostle John in heaven could get it wrong? But he did, not once, but twice. Can we look at that over in Revelation chapter 19? After these things, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God, for true and righteous are his judgments. Because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication, he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. Again they said, Alleluia. Her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who sat on the throne saying, Amen, Alleluia. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants and those who fear him both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of a mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteousness, righteous acts of the saints." Then he said to me, Right, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. Now note this, verse 10. And I fell at his feet to worship him. And he said to me, See that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. 
the great apostle John, in the midst of all of that glory, in the midst of that perfect environment, he was about to bow down and worship a man. Not only did he do that once, but he did it twice. Revelation 22. He showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And in the middle of its street and on the other side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. And there shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. Then he said to me, These words are true and faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show his servants the things which must shortly take place. Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Now I, John, saw the and heard these things. And when I saw and heard, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. And he said to me, See that you do not do that. For I am your fellow servant, and of your brethren the prophets, and of those who keep the words of this book, worship God. By the way, angel can mean either an angel as that celestial being, or a man, because the word simply means messenger. And so here twice, the great apostle John, in the most perfect environment, and heaven itself got it wrong. If he got it wrong there, how easily can we get it wrong here? Are we simply the product of our environment? Can we simply shrug our shoulders and say, well, that's just the way I was brought up. That's just the way that I am. My personality and my attitudes, well, that's just me. That's just who I am. But wait a minute, hold your horses, believer tonight. Doesn't 2 Corinthians 5.17 say, if any man is in Christ, he is what? Pardon me. I don't hear you. A new creation. All things have passed away. All things have become new. We don't have a cop-out clause. We only have an opt-in clause. And we better opt-in. In Galatians 5, from 13 to 24... If you would care to read that in your own private time, you'll see it speaks of the difference between the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. What a difference between the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. And we are the ones who are supposed to exemplify, exemplify the fruits of the Spirit. So are we simply just a product of our environment? I don't think so. I think that when a man or a woman comes to Christ, I think that everything begins to change. Down through the ages, men and women have prevailed with God, not because of their circumstances, but in spite of their circumstances. In spite of it. Think of Moses as a baby. There could not have been a worse time or a worse place to be born on earth for a little Jewish boy than the day that Moses was born. 
Bible says that there arose a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph. And he became, this Pharaoh, the first recorded anti-Semite in history. The Jews had been there a long time. The Israelites, I should say, had been there a long time. And they had grown and they had prospered. And they had become very great in the land. And this particular Pharaoh got frightened of them. And he did that every anti-Semite has done ever since with the Jewish people. Started to blame them and deride them. And that didn't work. And then he made them into slaves and became a very hard taskmaster. And that didn't work because they prospered all the more and they grew all the more. (laughs) And when that didn't work, he took that, what was his final solution, Kill all the baby Israelite boys that are born. Kill them all as soon as they're born. Slaughter them. And those of you who know the story know that those midwives to the Hebrews believed God and did not do that. And he was angry. And he says, why are they still alive? He says, well, those Jewish women, they're very vigorous the time you get to them, they already had their babies. And so he got all the more matter. And he made a decree in all the land that every little boy that was born of Jewish parents was to be thrown into the Nile to be eaten by the crocodiles, no doubt. What a time for Moses to be born. His parents are slaves. They've been ordered to kill their child. Say, what about the little girls? that They were allowed to live. Well, the idea was, of course, that uh, they would uh, grow up and without Jewish boys to marry, they would marry Egyptians and they would assimilate into society. Never was a worse time. Never was a worse environment. Never was a scarier time. But that's the time he was born. Without going into the whole story, you know how God spared him through his mother and his sister and found in the Nile by the Egyptian princess and he rose up to become the son of Pharaoh's daughter. And for the next 40 years, that's what he's called, the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Lived in a palace. Lived in opulence had great influence, no doubt. Highly prosperous. In a royal household. And yet, over the 40 years that he was there, something inside was stirring. He knew he was not an Egyptian. And he knew, probably because of his parents had put an end to him, that he was called to be the deliverer. The rescuer, the saviour of those oppressed Israelites. And at 40 years of age, he decided he would no longer be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. All that environment for 40 years that he grew up in, he could have stayed there. 
He'd have become even more fabulously wealthy. Who knows what he had grown into? Maybe he'd become the ruler of Egypt one day. Who knows? But he didn't allow that environment to dictate the plan of God in his life. And he refused to become the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin for a season. It says in Hebrews. Joseph was born into a dysfunctional family. His father made a grave mistake by favoring him above all of his brethren. He was a son of his old age. Jacob was 91 when he had Joseph. And boy, did he favor him. And he wasn't afraid to show it. And he gave him that special coat that he had made. Beautiful, rich coat. And his brothers despised him. And it got worse when he started to tell tales on them. <laughs> and here he is at 17, favorite of the family, telling tales on his brothers and they hate his guts for it. And it gets worse because he starts to have dreams. He says, I saw sheaves and my sheave stood up and all your sheaves bowed to my sheaf. <laughs> Boy, they did not like that. The Bible says they hated him all the more. And then it got worse. He had another dream. He says, I saw the sun and the moon and the eleven stars all bowing down to me. And even his father got angry at that. Do you think I'm going to bow down to you? Do you think us as a family are going to bow down to you? And they sold him into slavery in Egypt, these brothers, didn't they? Imagine growing up in that environment. Your father loves you and favors you and your brothers hate your guts. <laughs> Every chance they get, they despise you all the more. And in the end, they hate you so much, they were even going to kill you, but they prefer to sell you for money. And then he comes to Egypt and God promotes him. And for the next number of years, you know the story well. God promoted him through dreams that he had. God promoted him to be vice-regent of all of Egypt. And eventually his brothers come because of the famine looking for the corn. And eventually that wonderful, touching, poignant moment whenever he opens up his heart to them and he shows them, I am your brother. And he puts his arms around them and he hugs their neck and he kisses them. And he said, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And what a wonderful, beautiful story and what a tremendous ending. But think of those environments as a boy and as a man. And yet in spite of that, he became mightily used of God. He became a type of Christ in the Old Testament. Fanny Crosby went blind shortly after her birth. These were the days before Braille and before all kinds of aids to help. No blind dogs in those days, no guide dogs. It's tough times growing up blind. But she loved the Lord. She grew up to love the Lord. 
in spite of her awful blindness, she wrote over 8,000 hymns. She wrote over a thousand poems. In fact, so many of her hymns were getting included in hymn books that publishers were stopped including hers because she really had so many in there. So she started to write under pseudonyms, under a different name. She learned to play four instruments. And she became a great preacher and teacher of the gospel. In spite of her circumstances, in spite of having that handicap, that impairment, call it what you will, she went on to write such great songs as Blessed Assurance, Jesus is mine. Pass me not, O gentle Savior. Rescue the perishing. And many, many famous hymns that after a hundred years, the church is still singing them today. Some of the greatest appeal songs in history was written by that blind woman. George Matheson was a Glaswegian George Matheson was studying theology at university. At 19 years old, he started to go blind. He was engaged to be married. His fiancée broke off the engagement for she said, I will not marry a blind man. He never did marry. He remained single the rest of his life. But George Matheson went on to be a Church of Scotland minister. And he too wrote great hymns. O love that wilt not let me go, I hide myself in thee. One of the most well-known hymns in Christendom. He wrote that, he said, out of a, a sad period in his life because his sister looked after him for all those years as a single man. And at 40, his sister got married and she was going to leave, obviously. And he said that in his sadness, he says that hymn came to him in five minutes. Five minutes. He wrote it all down. She so look it up in the hymn book. It's one of the greatest hymns in the Christian church. And it came to him in five minutes. Tune and all. <laughs> That's the Holy Spirit, isn't it? Johnny Erickson loved all kinds of sports, especially swimming. She was just 18 years old, young woman, vivacious, full of vitality and life, had all of her life to look forward to. And she dived into Chesapeake Bay. And she misjudged the depth of it. And she hit her head in the bottom. And from that moment until today, She's a quadriplegic. She has no feeling from her shoulders down. She went through two grueling, intensive years of physiotherapy, all kinds of rehabilitation, which left her depressed, angry, suicidal, and even doubting the existence of God. However, she soon learned to hold a paintbrush between her teeth and paint. And began to sell her paintings. And her life took off. 
And as a young Christian, she honored God in every way she could. She's written dozens of books, made several recording record albums. In 1976, she wrote her best-selling autobiography, Joni. Some of you in here may have read that. Some of these older ones, I should say. Three years later, that book became the basis of a feature film that impacted millions of lives around the world. She married Ken Tada in 1982. That's why she's Johnny Erickson Tada today. And in 2010, she successfully overcame cancer. In spite of her circumstances, in spite of her environment, in spite of all that happened to her, could have become bitter, could have sugar-fisted God and remained angry. But she didn't. She didn't. Are we just a product of our environment? It doesn't have to be that way. Helen Keller was totally blind and totally deaf from 19 months old. But in spite of that, she became a world-famous speaker and author of 12 books. She even has a day named after her in Pennsylvania. 27th of June is Helen Cather Day. It's famous around the world. Why am I telling you all this? To remind us that our environment, our particular set of circumstances that we have been in or find ourselves in, doesn't have to dictate the rest of her life. Nick Wojcicki, Nick try saying that this time of night. Nick Wojcicki, born in Australia, no arms, no legs, just a torso with a head on it and two little like, paddle flaps at the bottom to help him to walk. Can you imagine being born like that? At age 10, he tried to commit suicide. He felt he could take it no longer. How could he live this way? Children get bullied at school, don't they? All the time you read about it. Laughed at. Joked about can you imagine no arms and no legs? Could you imagine growing up and you reach 10 years old and you feel, I can't live like this any longer? But then God broke into his life. And what an amazing story. If you've never heard his story, if you've never seen him, Google it. Go onto YouTube or GodTube. Put his name in. Want me to spell his name for you? All right? Serious. Look at it. See it. It's inspiring. You'll be amazed. He's now married a beautiful young woman. And recently they had a baby son together. How can he hold his son? He's no arms. They wrap a blanket around him. You'll see photos with his little son and his arms. You want to see him diving off a diving board into the pool doing a backflip <laughs> with no arms and no legs. Nick, V-U-J-I-C-I-C, 
V-U-J-I-C-I-C. Check it out. Look it up. Be inspired. Because all around the world speaks to tens of thousands of people. Vast crowds of people telling a story of how God has changed his life. I watched it recently and he said, you know, for a long time he wondered how in the world he could ever get a wife. Who would ever want to marry him? Do you know what? He's got a beautiful wife and now he's got a beautiful wee son. That's the grace of God, isn't it? Apostle Paul, he seemed to be a product of his environment, especially when he was Saul of Tarsus. He was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisee. He sat at the feet of Gamaliel, one of the greatest rabbis of his day. I mean, he was rabbinically trained. He was nationalistic to the core. He was a hater of Christians. Wanted to kill them, to put them into prison. I mean, he was a dyed-in-the-wool Pharisee. That's the environment he was brought up in from a little boy. So it looked like he was a product of his environment. And as opposed to that degree, he was until the day on the journey to Damascus. When in one moment, when the living Christ met him, and his life was changed forever. Later on, he would write, all of those things that was gained to me, all of those status I had in society and all that rabbinically trained and all of those things, he says, I counted that as nothing that I may win Christ. 1 Corinthians 15 and 10, he says, I am what I am by the grace of God. That's a powerful statement, isn't it? You are tonight what you are, believer, by the grace of God. Nothing more, nothing less. It's all by the grace of God. No matter what your upbringing, no matter what your background, this is why we're doing those interviews, those testimonies with people with different upbringings, different backgrounds, some were drunks, whatever. But whenever they met Christ, what a change came into their life. Jesus himself was born to very poor parents, so poor that he had to, his first bed was a feeding truck for cattle. Worked in a carpenter's shop. Is not this the carpenter's son? We know who he is. He's Joseph's son. He's not the son of God. He's just a carpenter's son. That's all he is. He's just a Nazarene. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Hmm. Despised, rejected of men, beaten, scourged, spat upon. But in spite of all of that, he became the savior of the world. All of those years growing up, when all of his brothers and sisters did not believe that he was anything special, never mind that he was a son of God had to take his resurrection for even his own brothers and sisters to believe in him. Yet in spite of all of that, he became the savior of the world. So I'm saying all of this tonight for this reason. No matter what our background, no matter what hang-ups 
no matter what has happened in the past, no matter where you are right tonight in this service, Christ can change your life. He can make all of the difference. He can give you a whole new environment to live in and to walk in and to enjoy for His glory. Amen. War in heaven? Yeah. War on earth? Lots of it. But we can walk in Christ tonight. We can walk in righteousness. We can walk in His righteousness because He's the one that makes us righteous. And He can give us a life worth living. Amen. Lord, we just stop a moment and we thank You that You have given so many of us a life that is worth living. This life in Christ. Lord, all of us come from different backgrounds. Some, Lord, have come from maybe favored backgrounds. Some maybe came from happy, well-adjusted homes. Others perhaps came from homes that were wrecked and destroyed through drink or drugs or divorce or whatever. And yet here we are tonight, Lord. But we're not just going to be a product of our environment. We're going to live for you. We thank you, Lord, that you bring change. You make the difference. You give us a brand new life. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creature, a new creation, a species that never before existed, that means. Something different because the Holy Spirit resides in us. So, Lord, we thank you tonight that you're the one by your grace that has made the difference to each of us. Lord, if there's a man or a woman in this house tonight that doesn't know you, I pray that they'll not leave this building this evening without making you Lord and Savior, inviting you to come into their lives and seeing their lives change forever. We give you thanks for this, Lord. You're the unchanging changer. We bless you, Lord, for your redemption. We thank you for so great salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.